Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We really want people to know Christ as our Savior and Lord and live their life for him. That's why I say it every single week. Pastor, why do you say it every single week? I don't want you to forget. That is why we're here. So we're going to continue in our series. We've been calling this series, How God Makes Bad Men Good, the book of Romans. If you've ever wondered what Romans is about, that's what it's about. How to make bad men and women good. So if you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 8 this morning, and I'm calling this sermon, Is the Jew Better Than You? <laughs> I, I, I thought that was a hilarious title myself. Um, I heard a story, and I heard a story about a, um, a missionary. She was in Zimbabwe, and she was going to meet somebody for lunch or something like that, and she was going, and she saw a beggar sitting on a street corner. He had a cup in front of him, and he had a book out, and he was reading the book like this staring blankly into the sky. So obviously the book was in Braille. And she came and she sat next to him and, and she was just listening. She, she didn't think he, he noticed her, but he's sitting there, she's sitting there very quiet listening to him read and he was reading out loud and she realized the immense truth and, and of the words coming out of her mouth. She said that he's reading the Bible. And so she sat there for a moment and listening to him and then she asked him, she said, sir, are you a Christian and he just smiled kind of blankly into the, into the sky and said, oh, yes. Four months ago, someone gave me a, a Bible in Braille, and now I'm a new man in Christ. And she said, let me ask you something. What is your favorite thing about the Bible? And he said, well, the Bible tells me that God gives me everything I want and everything I ever need. And she thought that was weird because here's a blind beggar who was skinny, had tattered clothes, dirty and smelly. And she thought, well, maybe he misunderstood my question. Maybe I need to ask him again. And so she said, well, what is it that you need and what is it that you want? And he got really excited and he said, all I've ever needed and all I've ever wanted is to hear from God to hear from his voice, and someone gave me the Bible, and now I'm a new man in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us that God is good. That he is so very good. And the Bible tells us that we are not. And then it tells us, but yet he still loves us, and has sent his one and only son to die for us. So the question that we're going to address today, is the Bible profitable? What is the Bible good for? Well, the answer is for everything. It's, it's the whole world. Because if we didn't have the Bible, then we wouldn't understand the gospel. We wouldn't know how to live our lives had God not told us how to do so. You see, we would know that we are sinners, and we would know that we are separated from God because of our sin. And we wouldn't know this if God not sent us his word. You see, what people believe, the vast majority of people believe, we're good. We're all just a bunch of good people, every single one of us. But what we need to realize is that there is no good people. No, not one. That everyone has sinned and everyone is separated from God because of our sin. But what the vast majority of people in our world, they, what they want to do, what they believe, is they think, I'm good and God's going to let me into heaven based off my goodness. And the Bible says, no, that's not the case. The, the war, vast majority of the world will then say, well, I have to do these things. There's a certain set of creeds that I do, actions I do to make up for my sin, and then God will, will see me as good. And the Bible says no. And I think when the Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans, especially here in chapter 3, these good people are really in the forefront of Paul's mind when he writes this chapter. Mark Twain said after spending a 
quite a bit of time with good people, he said, quote, I can understand why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. Yeah. Billy Sunday said, quote, you can preach sociology or psychology or any other kind of ology, but if you leave Jesus Christ out of it, you hit a toboggan slide to hell. C.S. Lewis said the safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestone, without signpost. It's a slippery slope that you gradually go down as your life passes by. When the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, he began it with the gospel. And the gospel is the good news or how we can be made right with a holy, perfect God. You see, in order to understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news. The bad news is that we're all sinners. And our sin, it makes us unrighteous in the eyes of God. So how can anybody be made right with God? That's the gospel. That's what we're talking about. The Apostle Paul, he breaks the book of Romans into four chapters, okay? Or excuse me, four sections within the chapters. And the, the, the first section, that's verses 1-1 to verse three twenty, and that's talking about the wrath of God. And the second section is all about the grace of God. And the grace of God is Romans 3.21 all the way to the end of chapter 8. And the third section is the plan of God. The plan of God is Romans 9, 10, and 11. And then finally we get to the will of God. The will of God is Romans 12 through the end of the book. And I think what Paul is doing is he's walking the reader through the process of salvation. And then he's going to get to the applications of of being saved. If you are saved from hell to heaven, this is how you should live your life, right? Well, back in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by who their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul wants everyone to know that, that, that God has revealed himself to everyone and we are all accountable to him. That there's no one without excuse. The heathen that lives in the middle of the Amazon rainforest and also the churchgoer that spent every day going to church. We're all accountable to God. In Romans chapter 2, Paul set out to let the religious person to know that their religion can't save them. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. He wants everyone that has dedicated their life to a certain set of rituals, to a certain creed, to membership of a certain church, know that they stand guilty before God. So when you put Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 together, what I see is that everyone's in trouble. The heathen and the, the churchgoer, we're all in trouble. And I think what Paul wants to do is he wants us to hit rock bottom. Anybody who's spent a lot of time dealing with addiction or ministering to people with addiction, I'll tell you, rock bottom's a great place to be because all you can do is look up when you hit rock bottom. So whether you're a Romans chapter one person or Romans chapter two, what Paul wants you to know is you can be saved, that you can be saved by the gracious hand of God. And it's not by anything you do, it's only by the grace of God. Did you know there's people that don't like that message? There's people that don't like uh, when, some, when, a, when somebody comes up and says, hey, the gospel says you can't be saved by anything you do. People don't like that. That is offensive to them because they want to they wanna feel like they have to take part in the salvation process. That they must add to this salvation equation, if you will. And so when someone comes along and says, there is nothing you can add, that becomes very offensive. 
There are certain people that get ostracized by their family for this message. Now, it does happen in our culture, but nowhere near the extent as it does in the the Middle Eastern or the Far Eastern culture. These cultures that are driven by shame and honor to have a family member leave the family religion, to be baptized, that is unheard of. And so what people will do, they will shun, and some, some cultures go as far as to murder a family member is converted to Christ. And they do that to, to save honor within their own family. So it's a very harsh reaction to the gospel that Paul is preaching here, right? Paul knows this reaction's coming. And so because, because Paul has said things like, oh, you're inexcusable, old man. That's what he said. He said things like, there is no partiality with God. He said things like, unless your circumcision is inward and not just outward, If you're just a Jew outward and not inwardly, it's all for nothing. That's what Paul has said. I think, I bet that raised some eyebrow with the Jewish crowd when they read that, right? With that, let's pick up our Bibles. Let's read in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true and everyone were a liar as it is written, that you were justified in your words and prevailed when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abound to his glory, why am I speaking, excuse me, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? And some may slanderly charge us in saying their condemnation is just. I'm going to be honest, if you just read this real, real quickly, just one time through, you'll probably sit there left scratching your head like, what in the world did I just read? This verse, this section of scripture is almost like a, a math problem, word problem from back in your high school days where you really have to sketch it out and draw it out to see what, what, what Paul is trying to say. If you were to go to 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter says about the Apostle Paul, he says, hey, when Paul writes, he writes some stuff that's hard to understand. That's what Peter said about Paul. I'd have to agree with, with Peter. I mean, some of the Paul's stuff is really deep. Well, in this section of Scripture that we just read, there are three questions. It's very Jewish of Paul to ask a question that he's going to answer it. And these questions are Romans 3, 1, 3, 3, and 3, 5. Let's, let's read them together. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Paul asks, what then advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Jump to question 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Go down to verse 5. Here's the third question. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul is asking questions that he knows the reader of his letter is going to ask, okay? They're, in a sense, going to ask, hey, Paul, if what you're saying is true, then God's covenant's no good. They're going to say, if God's covenant is no good, then God is unfaithful. And if God is unfaithful, then it's unfair that God would judge anyone. 
Can you hear that line of thinking and, and the people that are reading Paul's letter might be asking? They're going to ask her and say, hey, Paul, if you're going to attack God's chosen people, then you're attacking the very integrity of God. And to attack the integrity of God, uh, the, the, you're saying the, that he chose those people. And so the bottom line is that if our Jewish heritage doesn't make us right with God, then what advantage has the Jew? Do you think maybe that's what the recipients of this letter were asking? Okay, so I want you to hold that thought. The, the question is, what advantage has the Jew, right? It's a good question. Because anybody who's ever studied the history of the Jewish people would probably ask that same question. What advantage has the Jew? Because if, if you don't know the history of the Jewish people, it's one that is not an easy history, right? They've seen slavery. They've seen deportation, persecution, dispersion, intimidation, mass genocide. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They got out of that slavery, and then they wandered the desert for another 40 years. Then when they finally got into land, they fought war after war after war. And then once they finally got their land, every country that's been touching them has been trying to kill them ever since, right? They've had a civil war that split the nation into two, and the northern kingdom was taken captive by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was exiled by Babylon. And that's not even mentioned a little thing that happened in World War II called, called the Holocaust, where six million Jews were systematically murdered. And then the anti-Semitism that's been going on for generations, what advantage has the Jew? Good question, right? There's an old saying that says God will never give you more than you can, you can handle. It's not true, but it doesn't keep people from, from saying it. <laughs> Well, I think the Jewish people would greatly disagree with that saying, that God has definitely given us more than we can handle. If nothing else, being God's chosen people means life's going to be tough. If the Jewish people could sing a theme song, I think it would be the theme song to Annie. You know, it's a hard knock life. <laughs> it's instead of being tricked, we got kicked. Instead of kisses, we got kicked. It's a hard knock life, especially if you're a Jew. So the question is, what advantage has the Jew? Read Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. It says, For you are, a you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Look at Isaiah 43, Isaiah 43, 21. This is God speaking. He says, The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my righteous name. If you don't know this, it's great to be called God's chosen people. To simply have that title is a blessing. The problem is what the Jewish people concluded is that being Jewish saved them. Simply being God's chosen people, they believe that was enough to save them. Well, Paul has already proven that wrong in, in Romans chapter 2. Paul said being a physical descendant of Abraham does not necessarily make you a spiritual descendant of Abraham. In effect, what God has said, he said, Paul has said, if God doesn't put his, his mark on your heart, then the mark you put on your skin is all for nothing. So in chapter 3, Paul is really anticipating an argument here. Paul knows they're going to say, hey, Paul, you're undermining our faith. 
You're undermining the very foundation of your faith by this teaching that you teach. And so this is Paul's rebuttal. After that question, Paul says, what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is circumcision? And in verse 2, Paul says, much in every way. Do you read that? He says, being a Jew has tons of advantages. But, but, and then that, that's what's going to say, this says, does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And this is what Paul says, no way. Uh-uh, not in a million years. That's cap. That's what Paul says. He says, it's not true. He says, let God be true, though everyone was a liar. And in verse 5, he says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. Check out what, what, the, what this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, hey, you've got an unrighteous sinner and you've got a righteous God. Righteous, holy, perfect God. What does that show you? This is usually where a pastor comes out with some illustration to try to paint this picture, but there isn't one. I can't come up with an illustration more drastic than this. I could say something like, oh, you could take a five-year-old's little scribble artwork and put it next to a Picasso. That doesn't even come close. I could say, hey, we could take an all-expense-paid trip, five-star resort to Bora Bora, or a trip to the sewer plant. But that doesn't even come close. You've got an unrighteous sinner next to a holy God. You know what that shows you? It shows you how awesome God is. In verse 6, he says, For then how could God judge the world? So again, Paul here, he's asking a question, and then he's going to answer it. You know why Paul does that? Because he's a great teacher. The best teachers don't just simply come and talk to you, at you, for for an extended period of time. No, they ask questions, and they draw you in. They engage you with their questions. There was a friend of mine. He, he taught a class, how to teach a Bible study class, and the whole class he taught revolved around asking questions. And he said the best questions to ask are questions that not only engage the hearer, but allows them to draw them from their personal experience to, to share, to answer that question. I think that what, what Paul is doing here. And I think, you know, other than our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul may be the greatest teacher in the history of time because he's engaging his audience. He's drawing them in. Now, to be fair, I think the questions that Paul is asking are questions that he's probably been asked in the past, right? He's probably asked, had this question asked, and he's, he's addressed it before. Because when Paul would go to different cities, he would go to the synagogues first. He would preach to the Jews and then to the Greeks. So he would go to the synagogues first. He would preach Christ. And I'm sure Paul's heard all this before. He's heard all these attacks, and he's answered these questions. And I have to wonder if these questions aren't some of the same questions that Paul had himself before he came to Christ. Before Paul met the risen Savior, do you think maybe there's some of the same questions that Paul wanted to ask the Christians at that time? Because before becoming the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus, a Jewish rabbi. And I'm sure he wrestled with the Old Testament, what is said about the Messiah. And so either way, whether that's the case or Paul's heard this before or both, Paul's anticipating these objections from his audience. Why? Because he's just demolished the false security that religion brings in Romans chapter 2, right? Paul has just done away with all the works-based religion of Judaism. And the truth is he's done away with all works-based religion today. And Paul has done that because people will always point to their religion as a means to save them. Oh, I've done these things, now God has to save me. 
The question that Paul is addressing is what advantage has the Jew in verse 1? And what value is circumcision? And Paul says, a lot. Okay? Paul never said that the Jewish heritage was not important. Paul just said Jewish heritage is not enough. I can almost hear like Paul's critics trying to put words in his mouth by asking these questions. Being a Jew has an advantage. That's what Paul says. He says it gives you an edge, but by itself it's not enough. Just think about it. Paul was a Jew. Paul has been to the temple. Every time he goes to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple and he worships. So out of everyone, Paul has a knowledge of the benefits of being Jewish, right? You know, in Acts chapter 15, they had what's called, I called it the grace debate. And the grace debate was, does a believer have to get circumcised in order to be saved? And the answer was, no. You don't have to do anything. That's Acts chapter 15. Well, if you turn a page and go to Acts chapter 16, Paul takes a grown man by the name of Timothy, and he has him circumcised. Why? Because it's going to help his witness to the Jews that are in Derby and Lystra. Paul knows that doing this act is going to improve his ministry. Timothy's committed, right? Timothy's a man that's committed to serve. And I think that's hilarious because a lot of times I have difficulty finding, finding ways to get people to serve. I think maybe we're going to get to heaven. And if you don't serve in some ministry, you might have to talk to Timothy about that. But anyways, that was hilarious, okay? I fell on dead ears. That was hilarious. Picture it. I'll leave it for you. That's your homework today. But anyways, Paul says that being raised Jewish has its benefits. And this is what I'll say to that. Being raised Christian has its benefits as well. Anyone that's been raised in a Christian home, there's benefits for being raised like that. If you're raised by parents that maybe held hand around the dinner table and bowed their head and and led you in prayer, there's benefits in that. If you're raised by parents, maybe before they went to bed, they prayed for you, there's benefits for that. If you're raised by a a mom and dad that that took you to church every Sunday morning and then made you go to youth group on Wednesday nights, there's benefits in that. If you were sent to a Christian camp any time during your life, there's benefits in that. Now, I'll say those benefits might not be saved right away or seen right away, excuse me, but there's benefits in that. Here's something that's universal to everyone, believer and non-believer. Everyone has hard times. Everyone has those moments in our life where it seems like the whole world is crashing down on us. Anyone ever been there? Don't ever raise your hand. That's all of us, right? Everyone gets news that no one wants to hear. Everyone has those times that comes into our lives that cause the emotional pain to be so high that it's hard to breathe, right? Have you been there? And when that time comes, notice I don't say if, I said when. When those times comes, there's benefits if you're raised in a Christian home. Now, I, I know right now there could be parents that are here and they've raised their kids like that and their, and their kid has turned their back on the Christian faith and they've walked away. Maybe you brought your child to church as often as the doors were open. Um, there. You've done the best you can, but they've turned their back on the Christian faith. Let me tell you, you did the right thing. You gave them the right foundation. And what you need to do is pray that when times come, they're going to turn to God's word for answer. 
Because when those times come in our life, we, we have the word of God to tell us how to address these situations. Look in, in verse number two of Romans three. Paul says, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul says, much in every way. And the next sentence says, to begin with. Okay, maybe your, your Bible says, chiefly. It means now, right? Now, because the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. To them was given the Old Testament. That's what Paul is saying. Now, now notice here that Paul doesn't give a list of advantages. He could have. Paul could have given, what advantage has the Jew? Boom, boom, boom. He could have gone list after list of all these things. Paul could have pointed to the dietary law. That was a huge advantage to the Jews. Think about that. Before God said, hey, don't eat these things, Everybody else is eating things that made them sick, but God said, don't eat those things. That's a huge advantage, right? God gave the, the, the Jewish people the, sanit, the sanitation laws that said, hey, wash your hands after you, you do these things and make your, put your latrines outside of camp. That kept people from getting sick. That's a huge advantage, right? Paul could have pointed to lots of things, but he pointed to one thing. That one thing was the Bible. I mean, he doesn't give a list here. He keeps it so simple. What's the advantage of being a Jew? You have the Bible. And I think he wants to keep it simple because he's trying to make a point here. And the point is there's blessings from just having the word of God. Now, now he only lists one thing here, but he keeps writing the book of, of Romans. And I think eventually there comes a point where he can't take it anymore. And he just unleashes this amazing list of, of, of advantages to being Jewish. Read, it's in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Or I could wish that I myself be accursed. That, that means anathema, damned to hell. I, would, I myself were damned to hell and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Time out there. Let, let me, let me kind of. That verse right there is probably, for me, the most convicting verse in the entire New Testament. Because this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I would give up my eternal salvation. I would go to hell for all eternity if the Jewish people would recognize Jesus the Messiah. And that just makes me go, whoa. Is there anybody that I could, I think Paul's being honest here. He's not lying. Is there anybody I could say that about? And I myself, I go, I, I don't know. I don't think I could say that. But here's why I think Paul could say that. Because he was so kingdom-minded. He's like, if, if all the Jewish people would just know Jesus the Messiah, I would give up my eternal salvation, my eternal relationship with Christ and go to hell for all eternity. That's what Paul is saying. That's amazing. If we can only be more, just see me, if I can only be more like Paul, say I would trade everything so, so Jesus be glorified. That's what he's saying. Jump to verse four. Here's the list. That they are Israelites. And, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. From their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God overall. Time out, another, another great truth there. Is the Christ, who is Jesus Christ, the Christ who is God. If you don't know this, Jesus is God. That's what Paul just said there very plainly in verse 5. Is the Christ who is God overall. Blessed forever, amen. Paul lists eight advantages to, to being 
being Jewish there in Romans chapter 9. Each one's like more amazing than the one that came before. But if we go back to Romans chapter 3, Paul says, to begin with. That's the Greek word proton. That phrase that is in my ESV that says, to begin with, it is the Greek one word, proton. Paul, we would think the nucleus of this, the, the nucleus, the most important, the primary thing, the first rank, the absolute best thing about being a Jew you have the oracles of God. The word oracles in the Greek is the, is the word lagos. It means word or words. The words of God, all the words of God, all the promise of God, all the Old Testament scriptures, that's the, that's the oracles of God. So what advantage has the Jew? Here's Paul's answer. You've heard from God. You've heard the very voice of God. Big advantage, Right? Kind of amazing. Go back to Romans chapter 9. There's that list of, of things that are just so amazing. And Paul says the proton, the most amazing, the most incredible thing about being a Jew is you've heard God's voice. Because you're God's chosen people, God has revealed himself to the world through you. God spoke to a man by the name of Abraham, another guy named Isaac, and, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, all the major prophets, all the minor prophets. He spoke to a man named David and Solomon, all these guys. They're all Jewish, right? God spoke to them. Paul is stressing that one advantage over all the other advantage is, is, is hearing from the, from the very voice of God. Why? Because that's the basis of all the other advantages. The question we ask is, what advantage has the Jew? You've heard the voice of God. You've had God speak to you through the pages of what we call the Bible. We have the owner manual of life, Right? How to do life, we've got the word of God. People get married, they go, hey, what should my marriage look like? The answer's in the Bible. Hey, God gave me some kids, and I don't know how to raise my kids. Well, hey, the answer's in the Bible. Hey, um, something came to my life, and it hurt me really bad, and I don't know if I'm ever going to be the same. What do I do now? The answer's in the Bible, right? Hey, what's my purpose in life? That's a good question. The answer's in the Bible, Hey, somebody's hurt me deeply, and, and, and I don't know if I'm ever going to be the same. What do I do? The answer's in the Bible. You see, we don't live by human speculation. We live by divine revelation. It's the Word of God. It's called the Bible. So God gave us a book, and then he put his Holy Spirit in us to, to speak to us, to guide us, to direct us as we read his Bible. It's not an audible voice like you hear mine light right now, but a soft, quiet spirits to guide us, to nudge us, to point us in the right direction. So Paul is saying the greatest advantage of being a Jew, you have God's voice. You have God's voice, right? We call it the Bible. Well, what's the Bible? What is the Bible exactly? That's what someone will ask. If, if the answer is the Bible, then what is the Bible? Is it a human book or is it a divine book? Is it of natural origins or is it of supernatural origins? Is it a collection of writings and sayings by smart guys or is it something much more than that? Well, there are three basic stances on that question, okay? Number one, it's the very word of God. 
Number two is it's just the words of men. Uh, option three, if you will, it's a combination of one and two. In case you're, hey, where's Pastor John stand on this? I'm an option number one kind of guy. I believe this is the very word of God. I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. I believe it is a perfect treasure of divine instruction because it has God as its author, salvation at its end, and truth without any mixture of error for that matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It, it reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of a Christian union and supreme standard by which all humans' conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ who, who himself is the focus of divine revelation. Did you know many centuries ago there were these groups of guys that got together and there were some things they wanted to hammer out? There was things they wanted, hey, they wanted to figure out what, who the deity of Christ, who's Jesus, um, what's this thing called justification, how are we made right with God, um, the Trinity, what's, what's this thing we're calling the Trinity? And they, they got together and they argued and then they debated and they talked and they argued some more and they kept going back to one source over and over and over again. You know what that source was? Bible. The Bible was that source. And they kept consulting the Bible. Why? Read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training of righteousness. All the Bible is breathed out by God. You see, God inspired men to take quill and put it to parchment and to write what they wrote. It's not God was speaking and they're dictating. They're, yeah, God. And they're just dictating what God is saying as other false religions say that happened when their founder did what they did. No. God was inspiring. He was guiding men to write what they wrote. That's why you can still see personalities come out in their writings. For example, Peter writes different than Paul. And Paul writes different than John. And John writes different than Isaiah, right? They're all different men writing differently, but they're saying the same thing. So God moved, God inspired these men to write what they wrote, and we compiled their letters together in what we call the Bible. The apostle Peter, he explained this in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20, and read it. Peter said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the, the Holy Spirit. That, that word carried right there, it brings the idea of a ship and its sail, and, and the wind is pushing and guiding the sail. That's what Peter says. So that's the means by which the writers, they have their own style, and they have their own set of circumstances, and they wrote what they wrote. But in the end, they all said the same thing, that the Bible is the very word of God. And there's some that will disagree with me on that, and they'll say, no, it's just a bunch of letters that are compiled from a bunch of old guys. There's some people say that, yeah, they're lofty words, they're inspiring words, but they're just men's words. That's what some people say. That's the view of the liberal Christian. Liberalism does not believe the Bible to be the very word of God. They'll say, yeah, it's inspiring, just like Ernest Hemingway. He, he's inspiring, right? It's a really good work. That's what the liberal Christian says about the Bible. The third position I spoke of, it's somewhere between number one and number two. 
They'll say it's a combination of God's word and it's a combination of the words of men. And they'll say there's some things from God and that's truthful, but there's other things that's from men and so it's not necessarily truthful. It's a mixture of both truth and error. That's option number three. And so if you believe that, you can take a highlighter in one hand and a pair of scissors in the other and go, I like that. I don't like that. You can cut it out. I like this other thing and I don't like this. And so you can cut and paste until you have exactly what you want to have. Isn't that great? No, it's not great. I'm being sarcastic there. To tell you the truth, I have more respect for option number two guy than I do for option number three guy. Because if you're going to say Romans chapter 1 is wrong, I don't like what talks about the wrath of God. I don't like how it talks about how people have this depraved mind and and the decrepitable acts they do. I don't like that. I'm going to cut that out. Oh, but I get to Romans chapter 5 and chapter 8 where it talks about the love of God. Oh, I love that. I'm going to highlight that. Listen, the same guy wrote Romans chapter 1, wrote Romans chapter 5 and 8. You can't cut what you don't like and keep what you like. You you either got to keep it all or pitch it all. It's either accept it all or reject it all, right? This is how one of my favorite Bible teachers of all times, if you don't know Chuck Missler, he was genius of a man. He went to be with Jesus back in March of 2018. He said this, quote, it, meaning the Bible, the Bible is 66 books written by 40 authors, written between 1446 B.C. and 90 A.D. But now we discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time and space domain. Isn't that amazing? The Bible was written for over 1,500 years, 40 different authors. There were different places on the, on the planet, all these different circumstances, and they all say the same exact thing. Here's what the Bible says when you put it all together. There is a God, and we're accountable to him. It says that we are all sinners. The, the, the scholar and the heathen were all sinners, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what it says. How would we ever know that had God not told us? The truth is we'd never know that. We would never know that. We would just wander through life, doing what we do, sinning along that all the way, and then we would die and go to hell for all eternity. But yet God loves us, and he gave us his word to tell us that he loves us, And so that we can understand the love that he has for us and how great that is, how perfect that is. We wouldn't know that on our own. Look in verses 3 and 4 of Romans chapter 3. Paul says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as is written that you were justified in your words and prevail when you judge. So Paul asked the question, the question, what advantage has the Jew? And the answer is, you have God speaking to you. Pretty big deal, right? So the the follow-up question is, if we have God speaking to us, does someone's faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? That's the question. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, no way, not in a million years, right? And then, I don't know if your Bible's like mine, but I bet it's indented. Right in the middle of verse 4, is that indented in your Bible? It's, it's, it's like it's telling you that something's going on here. Well, the Bible translators are trying to tell you that's a quote. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Right there in the, in the middle of Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes Psalms 51. If you don't know, uh, I'm sure you don't know, but let me tell you, Psalms 51 is my most favorite out of all the Psalms. Psalms 51, I read it, I'm like, there's John right there that's me 
Psalm 51 was written by King David right after he came to terms with his own sin. And if you don't know his story, I spoke of this last week, but David's on his rooftop. He sees another gal's wife that he likes, and he calls her and has an affair with her and impregnates her and then lies to cover up his adultery and then has to murder to cover up his, his lie to cover up his adultery and then had to lie again. And then he gets called on the carpet. And this is what he writes in Psalms 51, verse 4. David writes, against you, meaning God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I mean, think about what David just said there. David stole a man's wife, committed adultery, murdered and lied. In short order, David broke all the commandments. And then he says, against you and you only, God, if I sinned. I mean, pretty wild when you think about it, that he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against the entire nation that, he, that he's leading. He says, against you and you only, if I sinned, God. Kind of amazing, right? You see, the greatest sin of David wasn't the sin of human, when he offended human beings. No, that he offended a holy, perfect God. That's true for David. That's true for you and me too. Every time we've lied, every time we've stolen, every, time, every immoral thought, every time we've been so angry we want to murder somebody, yes, it's a sin against somebody else, but it's more a sin against a holy, perfect God. My question is, where are you on this? Have you recognized your sin like David? Because every sin that we've committed, again, is against a holy God. Paul's already told us that no amount of religion will ever save us. You must cry out to God. You must recognize you're a sinner. You must beg him for forgiveness and give him your life. And for most people, it happens through a prayer where you recognize just how sinful and wicked we are. And then that only points to how amazing and perfect and holy and per just righteous God is. And if you cry out to him, the Bible says, for all, for all will be saved. You've never cried out to Jesus. Pray with me now. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And yet you love me. And you came and you died for me. I want to give you my life. Save me from my sins. And I say this name of Jesus Christ. Amen.